All right, good morning, familia. Good morning. My name is Hannibal Rodriguez. To those of you that are worshiping with us here in person, uh, worshiping with us online, uh, welcome all of you to Wheaton Bible Church. If you're visiting for the first time, we want to let you know that we are here to love you and serve you to the best of our ability. So if there's anything we can do for you, please, please, please let us know. So today we continue with our series based on the book of Ruth, uh, and the title we're given to this uh, series is Ruth, the Story of a Loving Wife. Uh, and it is important to keep in mind that part of the reason why we decided to do this series is because when Ruth uh, was written, she was, um, she was going through a difficult season. Uh, the, 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 the Israelites were going through a different, uh, difficult season. And uh, if you don't know what that is, all you have to do is read the book of Judges, which is the context of the story. And if you don't know, if you never read that book, then the best phrase or the best sentence we find in the entire book to describe the spirit of that age is found in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, in which it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what they wanted. This was a, a season in the life of the Israelites in which opinions matter more than truth. Feelings and desires came before God and his word. The individual came before the community, and many leaders of the time were like the blind leading the blind. I think that you and I would agree in saying that that's kind of a description of our culture today. Actually, I would argue that that has always been the description of the world. That's why I find it interesting when even Christians say something like, let's remember the good old days. I don't remember those good old days. Because this has been the history of the world. That we maybe got a break for a few years, maybe. But this has been the history of the world. So the question that I'm asking the book of Ruth, the question that I'm inviting to ask the book of Ruth, is how does one live in the midst of this spiritual chaos? How does one remain faithful in the midst of a cultural, of a cultural conflicting ideas? How do we keep ourselves from being driven into the spirit of the age? And Ruth chapter 2 says that there are three things that we got to keep in mind. Ruth chapter 2 says that there are three things that really matter. The providence of God, the character of believers, and grace matters. Providence matters, character matters, grace matters. For, character, for providence, we're going to talk about Ruth. For character, we're going to see Boaz. And for grace, we just got to see him both. So do me a favor. Look at the person next to you, if you want to, if you like that person. And... Just ask the question, do you understand the providence of God? Go ahead, go ahead. Second question, and this is going to be a little bit more embarrassing, okay? Are you a person of character? Go ahead, go ahead. Do you understand the concept of grace? All right. With that second question, everyone should be feeling guilty, by the way. We're going to see Let's go with the first one. Providence matters. Now, let me, let's, for those of you that were not with us last week and you're not familiar with the book of Ruth, 
Let me just give you uh, the context of the story based on Ruth chapter 1. So we know that this is a family that are living in Bethlehem, and they're going through this famine. And because they're going through this famine, the head of the family, if you could say, the father of the family, Elimelech, decided to move the family to Moab, which was enemy territory. And when he's there with his wife, Naomi, he dies. He passes away. And as soon as he died, his two sons get married with a couple of Moabites, Ruth and Orpah. But after 10 years of their being together, the two sons of Elimelech, the husbands of Ruth and Orpah, also die. They also passed away. So now in the story, we have Naomi, Elimelech's wife, at an older age, a widow living with her two daughters-in-law, dangerous, and no males in the family living in another land that is not hers, and completely unprotected and with no means to survive. So Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem, and Ruth goes with her, and Orpah goes away. That is the context of Ruth chapter 2. And Ruth chapter 2 is the continuation of the story. Now, at the beginning of the text, we see Naomi, Ruth approaching Naomi, and she's, she's asking Naomi if it's okay for her, my translation, to go to the fields to pick up left, uh, leftover grains. Now, the question you've got to ask the text is, why would Ruth want to do that? And why would Naomi allow her to go and do that? Well, if you know anything about the Israelite law in the Old Testament, you would know that for, for God had told the Israelites that if you were a person of means, that if you had a house and a car and an apartment and a boat in the Old Testament, <laughs> you had the responsibility to not only take care of yourself and your immediate family, but you also had a responsibility toward the poor. The poor people living in their midst. That was part of the law for the Israelites in the Old Testament. That if you had means, if you had a field, if you had plenty, you were responsible for the disadvantage in your midst. What is interesting is that when people talk about this, some people would accuse some Christians to say, well, that's communism, that's socialism. And I would say, no, that's the Bible. Actually, Leviticus chapter 19 makes it super clear. This is what God says to his people. Whenever you go and pick up your grain, if something falls to the ground, don't pick it up. Leave it behind for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, and for the foreigner. He actually says the same thing, uh, something similar in Deuteronomy chapter 24. He says that when you go to collect the grains, don't collect everything. Leave some for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. So Ruth knows this, and Naomi knows this. Naomi is a widow, so she qualifies. Ruth is a foreigner and a widow, so she qualifies. And Ruth and Naomi are both widows and poor, therefore, they qualify. But this is where the story gets super interesting. And I'm going to need you to pay attention. In specific, if you think that you know the story. Look at what happened in verse 3. So she, Ruth, went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind harvesters. 
as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Notice the sarcasm in the text. It says that Ruth found a field. And that is, as it turned out, which the translation for me will be, and it happened to be that that field belonged to Boaz. And it happened to be that that field, that Boaz was a relative of Naomi because of her dead husband. And it happened to be that this Boaz, as we're going to see later on, he was a guardian redeemer. Now, I'm going to explain later on what a guardian redeemer is. But for now, you just got to keep in mind that for the Israelites, which I actually think that it's a, it's a pretty cool way to structure society and family, the guardian redeemer was someone that had a responsibility not just for him but for his family, extended family. So as a man, I am not only, let's say if I was living in those times, I'm not only called to take care of my wife and my kids, but also to think about my brother, my sister, and their kids, and their kids' kids, because that's kind of what it means to be a guardian redeemer. But the reason why I'm putting emphasis and being sarcastic and uh, it happened to be is because that not only happened in verse 3, but it happens in verse 4. It says that just, it happened to be that just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, and he says, the Lord be with you. It just happened to be. Now, once again, I hope you notice the sarcasm in the way I'm saying that. Because the Bible, even though it says, uh, as it turned out, or it happened to be, we know that if you believe that God is God, that actually never happens. This is God orchestrating everything. This is God working providentially. This is God guiding the thing, using everything to accomplish his plans. It was God working providentially why Naomi wanted to go back to Bethlehem. It was God working providentially why Ruth decided to stay with her. It was God working providentially why she happened to be in a field. It was God working providentially why that field happened to belong to Boaz. It was God working providentially why Boaz arrived just in time when Sarah, when Ruth was there. It just happened to be that God was working providentially in every single step of the way. Did you know that that is not unique just to Ruth and Naomi? That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to know that God is always in control, working providentially. He's working with you and for you. He's working with creation and for creation at all times. Let me give you a good definition of the providence of God. David Helm says this. The providence of God is the working of God's sovereignty to continually uphold, guide, and care for his creation. Notice that this theologian uses the word sovereignty and providence in the same par paragraph. And even though the sovereignty and the providence of God are different, they go together. The sovereignty of God is talking about God's right and power to do everything that he pleases. And the providence of God is God using that power and authority to accomplish what he pleases. Let, let me give you an even better example. This comes from a, 
um, another theologian, she, she puts it in an amazing way. She says, nothing happens to us that God has not scheduled into our calendar. We meet no one with whom God has not arranged an appointment for us. So if you happen to be here and you're married and you are struggling and you're wondering if that was a God gift, yes, it was, even if it hurts. So the people in your life, God plays there. The situations in your life, God plays there. Whatever you're going through, God placed there. Now, I know that there are many times in which that doesn't make any sense. And I know that there are times in which it feels like if God placed us there, it's because he doesn't care, or he placed us there and he's absent. Or he places us there and there's nothing he could do because he's powerless. And I wish I could say that you can get rid of that feeling really quick, but the reality is that you can't. It feels that way. And the reality is that it feels that way because you're a broken person living in a broken world, just like me. Just in case, even the preacher has those feelings at times. But it is, it is during those times in which there are a few doctrines that really help me. So, for example, for me, the doctrine of the goodness of God, that God brings everything and allows everything, and it always comes from a God that is always good. That helps me. Even if I don't understand it. See, the doctrine of the compassion of God really helps me. Because I know that even though God allows things and brings things into my life, he cares for me, he feels with me, and he feels for me. That really helps me. See, the doctrine of the holiness of God really helps me. Because whatever the Lord allows into my life or brings into my life always comes from a holy God. Therefore, there's nothing sinful about it. See, that really helps me. But one of the doctrines that has really, really, really helped me and shaped my life has been the sovereignty and the providence of God. And this is the quick understanding. Everything that the Lord brings, everything that the Lord allows into your life, everything that the Lord brings or allows into your life is always for His good, His glory, and your good. Even if you don't feel it even if it doesn't make any sense. You know, as an immigrant preacher, I have the tendency to invent words. <laughs> you know how I know? Because I see it in your faces. <laughs> Every now and then I say something and you're like, <laughs> even worse, you look at the person next to you and it's like, <laughs> and I don't do that on purpose. I'm just an immigrant. <laughs> but today, I'm inventing a word on purpose. Actually, I looked it up, and apparently somebody else came up with this idea, but we have a different definition. See, the secular world believes in coincidence. Christianity believes in a God that works providentially. 
Therefore, the new word for us today is Godsidence. That's a good word. I'm probably going to become rich because of that. <laughs> and this is the idea. That God works in ways in which it seems like it just happened to be a coincidence. But because we know that God is sovereign and works providentially, he's the one accomplishing his plans at all times. Now, let me share with you how is it that I do every time I struggle with this. And I actually do this little exercise in my head all the time. Once again, because I realize that we do, we do struggle with this thing. Actually, because this is family, how many of you guys felt that God is not that good? Raise your hand. Oh, you are all holy. <laughs> how many of you have ever felt, or at least asked the question, is God really that good? Okay, like five of you. How many of you guys ever wonder, or at least ask the question, is he powerful enough to get me out of this one? I go through that. So, I usually do an exercise similar to what I'm going to share with you today. Actually, I used this before. I used it about two years ago at the beginning of the pandemic when we were talking about God's sovereignty in the midst of a pandemic. And this is the question I asked you two years ago. And by the way, I'm going to do this again two years from now. The question for you was, why is it that we're here today and we're listening to this sermon today? Actually, when I preached that last time, I was speaking to a camera, which I hated, by the way. The reason why you are hearing this sermon today, the reason why we are talking about the providence of God today is because of Fidel Castro. What? <laughs> Listen, I'm not a Cuban, so don't ask me, are you Cuban? I'm not. Let me explain why is it that I'm saying that the reason why you are here today, listening to this sermon today, is because of Fidel Castro. Because it happened to be that in the 1960s, El Comandante Fidel Castro started doing crazy stuff in Cuba. So because of that, a ton of Cuban citizens came to the United States. And it happened to be that one of those guys that came to the United States was a young man with his family, and that young man will become a pastor. And it happened to be that that pastor later on in life was in an evangelistic event that had about 5,000 people. And it happened to be that in that event there was one lady with three kids. And it happened to be that the Lord put this lady and this pastor together and she became a member of his church. And it happened to be that a year later her older son will become a pastor, a Christian. And I happen to be that this young man, good-looking, passionate, charismatic, <laughs> what, I, I, I'm not talented, gifted young man, five years, I'm not even talking about anyone you know. <laughs> five years later, we'll come, we'll move to another church. And it happened to be that the pastor of that other church was also a Cuban that had to leave Cuba because of Fidel Castro. And it happened to be that that Cuban pastor hired this young man to work in this Spanish-speaking congregation that was part of an English-speaking congregation. And it happened to be that six years later, that young man will become the lead pastor of this Latino church inside of this English-speaking church. 
And it happened to be that the senior pastor of the English-speaking church really, 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 really liked this not-so-young, charismatic, good-looking, passionate, talented, and gifted young man. Not-so-young. And it happened to be that that English-speaking pastor would retire. And 60 years later, 60 years later, God will call this young man to be the senior pastor to speak to a congregation and say that you should never, ever, ever forget that God is in control and he works providentially to accomplish his purposes. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of a struggle, in the midst of exile, God is still working, God is still moving providentially, and God is still accomplishes his plans. And that's why as a church, I think that we should say, thank you, Fidel Castro, and amen. <laughs> that's your life. That's why you're here today. That's your life. So every time you have these questions about the sovereignty of God, or just do that exercise. And I guarantee you that you will be able to see how God was there every step of the way. The providence of God really matters. That's what was holding Naomi, you know? And that's what Ruth was learning. Because the providence of God really matters. That's what we learned from Ruth. Now let's learn from Boaz. And he's going to teach us that in the midst of all these, working, God working providentially, one thing that is required of these people that understand the providence of God is that character matters. See, the difficulty for some people when we talk about the sovereignty of God and the providence of God is to say, well, I'm just going to chill and relax. Let it be. I don't know what Bible you're reading because that's not in the Bible. Actually, what we're going to learn here is that even when we believe in the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, we must remember that for us Christians, character matters. You know how I know that? Because that's exactly what happened to Boaz. Look at the description that we have of this man, chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The phrase, the reason why we highlighted the word, a man of standing there, is because he can be translated as a man of substance or a man of noble character. Someone that was respected by the community. So look at what the Lord is doing. Not only he's taking Naomi and Ruth back to Bethlehem, not only he's taking Ruth to the land of these men, but he's also taking Ruth to the land of a man, to the field of a man that is trustworthy because he's a man of character. See, what made the difference in the life of Ruth is that Boaz was a man of character. Now, am I saying that just because the verse says it? 
No, I'm saying because that's what the text shows. Actually, when you think of Boaz, my invitation is that you think of him as an evidence of God's grace. Boaz is an evidence of God's grace to both Naomi and Ruth. And he's an evidence of God's grace is because precisely that's what Ruth was looking for when she went out to look for a field. That's what verse 2 says. Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. The word favor right there is the synonym of the word grace. See, God in his providence was taking Ruth not just to this place, not just to collect food, but to put him under the protection you will see, the provision you will see, and the dignity that someone will give him. His name was Boaz, a man, a man, uh, a man of noble character. Now, let me show you why I say that. Verse 5 shows us that a man of character, of character protects. Look what it says in verse 5. Is that verse 5? No. Let, let me do it. Let me do it. There it is. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvester, who does that young woman belong to? Now, watch here. I know that during this time, this season in life, modern sensitive ears will hear this, read this, and say, what? That's not right. No woman belongs to a man. Relax. <laughs> Pay attention to the context. This is a patriarchal society. In God's design, men... I'm not saying that we are a patriarchal society, but I want to say in God's design, men had the responsibility to protect, provide, and care. Not only for the males in the family, but for all the females in the family. Now, people hear that and say, well, the, implica the implication there is that the Old Testament says that women are weak, or that women can work, or that women can do all these things outside home. First of all, go back and read Proverbs 31. Actually, there's a lot of us guys that need to learn a lot from that female in Proverbs 31. Actually, Ruth is the perfect example that the women in the Old Testament were not weak, that were very strong, that were super capable of many things, and that could make things happen. And yet, that doesn't change the roles. Men is still called to protect, provide, and care. It's just different roles. Boaz, which is a man of character, is willing to do that. Now, I know that in church history, and I know that in all the Old Testament and even New Testament, there are really poor examples of men. But that just proves my point. The problem is not with the design. The problem is with us. So when Boaz is asking the question, who does this young woman belong to? He's asking the question, who is taking care or protecting this young woman? Now here, when he finds out that this is Naomi's, Naomi's daughter-in-law, and when he finds out that everything that Ruth has done for Naomi, this is what he says, verse 9. I have told... The man not to lay hand 
and new. This is super interesting because everyone knew that a young woman working in a field surrounded by men had a high potential to be sexually abused. And Boaz uses his authority, his leadership, and his manhood to protect these young men. So listen, if you are a person of authority, if the Lord has placed you in a place of leadership, if the Lord has placed you in a place in which you have a little bit more authority than the rest, you have to remember that the teaching both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is that the Lord gives authority, power, and titles not to satisfy your own desires, but to protect and serve others. That's what the Lord gave you, what he gave you. This desire and this uh, desire to protect people is an, it's an evidence of noble character. When you use what the Lord has given you to protect others, it's an evidence of noble character. Not only Boaz provides or protects, but he also provides. Look at what verse 8 says. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the woman who worked for me. Now, I want you to notice two things about this man really quick. Number one, he's an older man, obviously. And when he looks at a younger woman, he is not after her. Notice how he talks about her. My daughter. Because a man of character looks at younger women as sisters or daughters. And then notice how he immediately finds a way to provide for her. See, Boaz knows what, knows what we talked about before in Leviticus chapter 19. He knows that if he had a lot, was to share. He knew that if the Lord had given him a lot, was to share with the vulnerable. He knew that the Lord had called him to, 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 uh, to collect what he had, but also to leave some for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. You know why? Because a man of character is also a man of generosity. A woman of character is also a woman of generosity. To be a Christian and to have Christian character is to be generous. It's not the accumulation what makes you special. It's how much you're willing to give. Not only was protects, not only Boaz provides and he's generous, but three, and I think that this is the most important of all of this, he dignifies. Verse 9, I have told the men not only to, lay, to not lay hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. You have no idea how radical and countercultural that was. First of all, no woman would, would ever get, uh, go get the drink from the men's water. And no foreign woman would ever do that. And yet, Boaz used her, his authority to allow her to do, to do that. But there's more. In verse 14, he does the ultimate thing. Something that nobody would ever even dream about. Especially if you have a foreign woman. Actually, let me say it before I show you the verse. In the Israelite, Israelite society, there were 16 different ranks. 16 different ranks. The last three 
are the bottom of all. So in that rank, in number 14 were resident aliens, immigrants. After that, it'll be male immigrants, and the very last one, it'll be a female immigrant. So no one that is in a position of authority, no one with means and resources, no one that is respected by society would ever, ever have any kind of interaction with a foreign woman. And this is what he says, and this is what he does. Verse 14, this thing is not working. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here. Have some bread and dip in the wine vinegar. In that culture and in that time, the people that sat with you were only the people that were important to you. The people that shared a meal with you was the people that you were, you were telling them by that act that they had a place in, their heart, in your heart and that they had a place in your life. And Boaz rescues, redeems, and elevates the dignity of this woman that can be so easily ignored. He gives dignity to the quote-unquote undignified. In the midst of a broken world, in the midst of a broken world, one of the ways in which God shows his grace to this creation is through his people. People of character. People that are willing to protect when it's necessary. People that provide when it's necessary. People that are generous when it's necessary. But more than that, people that can see beyond the brokenness and give dignity to people because they have been created in the image of God. One of the primary ways in which the Lord brings salvation to this creation is through his people, through his church. Look at what Blaise Pascal said. People almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. And he calls the church to make religion attractive, make men and women wish it were true, and then show that it is. I'm sure that it's no surprise to any of us that Christianity is not popular in this part of the world. I'm sure that is no secret to anybody in this room or worshiping with us online in which we know that Christianity is not popular nowadays. And sure enough, we could always blame society. We could always blame that the culture is becoming more and more uh, secular, that we have people in the government that are needed, not really giving glory to God. All these things, that is all true. But I would like to argue that the primary reason why Christianity has lost popularity in this part of the world is because of Christians. Because we are part of a world that as Christians, character doesn't matter as much. 
and what the Lord has used throughout history has always been the lives of his people that live and love different. So if people know more about your politics than your gospel, there's a problem with you. So if people know more about your opinions about life than the gospel, than your love for them, then there's a problem with you. So if people know more about your convictions and masks or not, more than your gospel, then there's a problem with you. If people know more about your opinions than, than the God you believe in, maybe we should repent. Because we know that character matters. Yes, we have to believe in the sovereignty of God. And yes, we have to believe in the providence of God. But we also have to believe that God uses the character of his people. So the question for us today, so we can finish here the next three hours, <laughs> is how does one change, though? Yes, let's say that we believe in the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. But how, do we, how does a character change? Well, point number three, grace matters. Oh, grace matters. So if there's one word that appears a number of times in the text, is the word favor. So for example, it appears in verse 2, it appears in verse 10, and it appears in verse 13. And I told you before that the word grace there is a synonym of the word, uh, uh, the word favor there is a synonym of the word grace. Now Ruth goes through all of this, she experienced all of this, and she goes back home and tells Naomi all of these things. And look at how Naomi responds in verse 20. I can't see anything. There it is. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness, talking about Boaz. Now, the reason why I highlight the word kindness there is because that word kindness is the synonym of the word favor, the synonym of the word grace. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. So look at what Naomi understands right away. Two things. That the reason why Boaz is behaving the way he behaves is because he's a man of grace. He is a man that, has, that knows how to extend kindness because he understands, understands grace. But the second thing that Naomi understands is that in the providence of God, uh, God provided a guardian redeemer. Now, we're going to talk about this uh, more next week. But I'm going to give you two responsibilities of a guardian redeemer. Number one, the guardian redeemer, if you had a family member that was sold into slavery because of poverty, so if you were poor and you sold yourself into slavery, uh, the guardian redeemer, redeemer had the responsibility to use his wealth to purchase the freedom of your relative, to buy back freedom. That's what a guardian redeemer would do. And two, the guardian redeemer will, be, will play the role as a family representative. He will go in front of whoever he needed to go as a representative of the family. Now, this is the beautiful thing. That the reason why Boaz was doing everything that he was doing was not just because he was a guardian redeemer, but because he understood grace. How about if I tell you that the reason why Boaz is there is to point us to the greater Boaz. Actually, I think that the reason why Boaz is such an important character in this story 
is because Boaz is a prefigure of Jesus, the greater guardian redeemer. The one that, the, the, the one that is because of, the one that used his sovereignty and worked providentially to uphold you, to guide you, and to care for you, and that's why you're here today. A guardian redeemer that when he lives, dies, and resurrects, goes to the cross, does what he's supposed to do because he's a God of favor, a God of grace, and a God of kindness. A guardian redeemer that when he goes to the cross, goes to the cross to protect you from the power of sin and the condemnation of sin. A guardian redeemer that when he goes to the cross, provide, provide for you a way into the Father. Provided for you forgiveness. He paid the debt of our freedom. A guardian redeemer that is also a representative. He takes our place. He takes what we deserve. And he gives us what he deserves. A guardian redeemer that does all of that. And at the same time, gives you dignity. You know how I know that? That's part of the reason, one of the reasons why we celebrate communion. Did you know that? See, we don't deserve to be in the Lord's table. See, we are, we, we are broken people. We are the undignified people. We are the ones that don't deserve to be before the Lord. See, all of us, I would say, either are some sort of representation of spiritually broken people or strangers to God, or vulnerable people, or lonely people, or weak people, or orphaned, or whatever. And not necessarily because we have been the victims of somebody else, but because many times we have looked for that. And yet, we have Jesus, our guardian redeemer, that invites us to his table. There's an interesting thing in the story when Boaz invites Ruth, the language of the text suggests that she sat in a corner because she didn't want to be next to Boaz. She did not feel that she deserved to be next to Boaz. And that's when he says, come and sit next to me. You are Ruth. I am Ruth. And we have something better than Boaz. We have the Son of God, our guardian redeemer, inviting us in. So I don't know where you are in your relationship with Jesus. If you are a Christian and you're living an awful life, the only thing that the Bible requires you is that you repent and come and sit at his table. And if you're not a Christian, all you have to do is believe and repent and come and sit at his table. So I'm going to ask you to grab your cup if you grab one of these at the beginning and remove the first cover. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you truly believe that he's the way, the truth, and the life, if you truly believe that he's the only way into the Father, I'm going to ask you to grab this bread and this is what scripture says. 
the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We may participate. Now let's remove the second cover of the cup. Scripture says that in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You may participate. Lord, we do recognize that we have failed in the way we live our lives. That sometimes we forget that character matters. That sometimes we forget that you work providentially and that you are sovereign. That sometimes we let our emotions control us instead of convictions control, uh, controlling us. I pray, Lord, that just as these elements enter into our system, may the grace of Jesus Christ displayed at the cross, may the grace of our guardian redeemer enter into our soul. And it stays there. So we trust you in the midst of trouble. We find peace in the midst of pain. And we rest in your sovereignty when we are in exile. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus. And the church says...